So welcome to the first Cycling Industry News Podcast of 2022. I'm Sean Lally from Cycle Systems Online. You may have heard me on the Cycle Systems Academy podcast. For Cycling Industry News, every month we're going to be looking at different issues that affect the cycle industry, the sort of thing we tend to talk about when we meet up down the pub or at trade shows. And I'm incredibly excited this week to have the legendary Mike Burroughs with us. So, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sean. So, Don't sent- get too excited. Don't get too excited. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, essentially, I would expect everyone listening to this podcast would have heard you and would have had a good idea of exactly what it is that you do. But on the off chance anyone doesn't, because, of course, we, we've heard of people like... Um, was it Evan Boson Hagen? He'd never heard of Eddie Merckx. So you could never tell who's heard of whom. Um, you started out as a frame builder in Norfolk in England. So do you want to tell people about your history with cycling and how you got into frame building and where it went from there? Yeah, well, I started with cars. I mean, back in my youth, they spent youth as it were, it was the cars of women sort of thing. Eventually gave, gave up the cars and married the woman. I'm still wondering about that one, but uh, basically the car blew up. I had to borrow the wife's bike and cycle to work. And actually, it was the best thing I'd ever done. You know, coming out of work, you, know, you had a bad day with a foreman or something, and not being stuck in a traffic jam in a motor car, just riding this bike home, which is just a fantastic sensation. And, you know, I'd never been a cyclist as a kid in particular at all. But by then, I was working with a, with a guy, Paul Denny, who had built his own bicycle frame. So we got chatting to Paul or whatever, and basically we we became cyclists as a family. We, we, the, the Paul loaned me a tandem tricycle, what wonder, wonderful beasts they are, which ended up with my on the back and, and me on the front, but my wife with a, the, and a half decent tour or whatever. Uh, and eventually, taking Paul's advice, I got, I got around to buying a set of Reynolds 531 tubing and, and raising up my first frame. Um, then what happened was 1980 at Brighton, the HPV uh, event started up, the first speed challenge for you know, bicycles without rules, as it were, sort of thing. So a, a gang of us went down to see that. So I was then getting into frame building for the odd local rider, Andy Pegg in particular. I'd built one for him, sort of thing, and a few other frames. But then this whole new parallel world of you know, ultra aerodynamics kicked in. And that sort of started influencing my thinking on designing bicycle frames. You know, when you design a bike frame back then, and it was all about you know fag paper clearances and lightness and everything. But now I was designing a machine that was you know, trying to do a hundred mile an hour, if you like. That wasn't what was stopping the machine doing a hundred mile an hour. It was aerodynamics and rolling resistance and transmission efficiency. Sort of none of those things ever occurred in the cycling world. So that then started influencing my bicycle design. And then the last of the steel frames I built was with this little baby frame, a tiny little 16-inch frame with a, with a very long aero seat post or whatever, uh, which was, you know, a very, very like, the basis of the most modern sort of little aero frames, of course. Um, but that, of course, then led directly into carbon fiber and then sort of the next chapter, as it were. But, but all those, I did about two dozen frames, I suppose, in total. Just classic, you know, silver braids, like frames, whatever sort of thing, something sort of outstanding until I say I did that final little baby frame. So that was a, an interesting little episode. 
And is that the frame that's on the BBC programme Bicycle, where you talk about trying to make the steel tubing aerodynamic? Probably the one, yes. My understanding was you couldn't make aerodynamic tubing usefully. We'd got into our oval tube frame then, of course, in in the late 70s, early 80s, and basically all you got was a whippy frame. So the idea was to make the frame as small as possible. So the the non-aerodynamic bit was quite tiny, and the bits that stuck out, like the seat posts and the handlebars, were then aluminium aero section that they were streamlined. So that, that was the sort of rational thinking behind that. And one of the things we want to talk about shortly is the fact the basic bicycle design and fundamentals could be potentially going through quite a radical shift at the moment. But certainly, I think in many people's eyes, the bike that Chris Boardman used in the 1992 Olympics that you designed alongside Lotus was quite a good example of that. So you designed this bike with Lotus, which looks nothing like the uh, diamond-shaped frame people had seen before. So tell us a bit about that. Well, I think it, it, that came from the, the, the first baby frame. So that little, I, I had, yeah, I was riding a 16-inch bicycle as opposed to, say, a 22-and-a-half, which I would normally have ridden. And then a friend of mine got his hand on some carbon fibre to, to mould the shell of, of an HPV when it was a big. And this stuff was so strong and light, it, it was just amazing. And it, it, it was like, picking up your first piece of honeycomb board. It's such amazing stuff. Oh, what can I do with this sort of thing? Now, with honeycomb board, you can't do much. But with carbon fiber, you can do anything. And I suddenly realized I've got this little baby frame, this little tiny thing. You could fill it in. You know, I would never have thought that for the 22 and a half inch frame, that would have been stupid. (laughs) But a 16 inch frame, and certainly if I curved a couple of the the sort of the, the outlines, as it were, that would scallop it in a little bit. So literally the very first one I, got, I registered with the patent office in December 82 was based on that, as it turned out, wrongly based on that little original 16-inch baby frame. Now, the problem with that, that bike had a 24-inch front wheel to keep the, you know, the, the, the non-streamlined bit as small as possible. But of course, I now moulded that element in carbon fibre. And of course, it was streamlined. It didn't need the little front wheel and all that shaping anymore to be streamlined. So that bike did me for a couple of years. And then I realized, you know, oh, I, I could do this better. So then the second generation, I realized I could do this. So I redesigned it with a full-size 700C front wheel with the monoblade and carbon fiber and integrated with the handlebars and with the wheel on one side on the back. And that was a, that was materials thing and famously carbon fiber is nothing like aluminium okay it's, it's a it's a, a black fiber it's a piece of cloth literally and you mix it with or soak it in resin put it into a mold whatever and there's a famous saying in the aircraft industry where it was obviously coming in first of all the people were thinking black aluminium mm. in other words they were simply replacing a sheet of aluminium with a sheet of carbon fiber and in a sense that's was sort of what i was doing with that first carbon frame with the wheel in the slot in the back because that, that's how you fix a wheel into a, a steel tube frame but once you're molding in carbon fiber that that isn't really the best way of doing it and i realized the best way is to mold the, the bearings into the frame at the back and then mount the wheel on one side it, it didn't matter that the wheel was out of line as it turned out 
slow, to be fair. Most frame builders do obsess about getting their wheels lighter. It's kind of traditional things. Uh, it turned out it's not important at all. But that gave me that nice, neat design. The chain went down one side, the wheel was on the other side. You've got that single pure monocoque shape inside, which is, a, in terms of structure, is absolutely the, the best thing to do with carbon fiber. So, so that all arrived very logically, but step by step. Uh, and that was a bike that, that Rudy Tobin took over to Lotus to show them to say, look, you know, how about we make some of these, whatever sort of thing, and then that was it. So, and, you know, the nice thing was that Mr. Borman, you know, managed to pedal it rather quickly. Indeed. And I ever did. And <laughs> And of course, that bike, the Lotus 110, is iconic. If you are fortunate enough to go to the Science Museum in London, there's a whole load of bicycles from history and this amazing design and the ceiling. And it's actually got the 110 mountain bike as well as the road and track bikes there. There is a Lotus 110 club of people who collect and follow these bikes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, they, they had their anniversary recently over Hessel, and they invited me across to sort of turn up there, whatever sort of thing all these guys with those 110s. To be fair, the 110 was nothing to do with me and they refused to pay me any royalties. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, and it's, it's a very poor design, I have to say, but it's a monocoque. It's a very bad version of the monocoque. The yeah. person who designed it knew nothing about engineering or bicycles. And Mike Nelpool from HK Fiber, who does my serious composite work, is kept quite busy fixing old 110s. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that'll make, that'll make a few yeah. people cry. So yeah, yeah. one of the things that um, people may be less aware of is that when we're looking at the world of road bikes, what is now a standard road bike frame? If we're looking in the late 90s, they were called compact road bike frames. Everyone, as That's you say, right. rode these much taller, bigger frames with a tiny bit of seat post. It's what we all rode. And I remember actually reading a review in cycling plus magazine back when it was a cycling magazine and it had these very first compact frame road bikes in and now that's what everyone yep. rides and this again yep. was your design and it's a design you yep. designed for giant now yep. were you thinking at the time that this was the optimal bike design for cycling an optimal bike design for a big company like giant to produce bikes or both in a very interesting way. Basically, Giant had seen, not so much the Lotus bike, they didn't do that. they'd seen my signature on the O'Brien bike, but in a replica for Graham, and the shiny version ended up at the Vega show, and Giant saw my signature on that, and they were looking to go up market up until that point. They'd just been selling you know, cheaper than anyone else, and they realized they needed a bit of an image, so they, they launched the, 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 their own mountain bike team and brought me on board as a designer. Now, as part of that process, they flew me out to Taiwan, in 93, that would be to sort of sit in on a, on a product meeting and see what I was getting into, as it were, whatever sort of thing. Um, and one of the problems they had was that the Taiwan, Taiwan runs a very efficient system. Taiwan made bicycles, Giant Europe and Giant America sold bicycles. And they, they would sort of haggle with each other. Europe didn't get given anything by Taiwan. Europe went to Taiwan and said, right, we want red bikes, blue bikes, green bikes, whatever. They placed the order with Taiwan. And what they wanted was the OCLV, you know, like Trek and Pioneer, the molded like carbon fiber. Now, they had them in the mountain bike, which only needed three sizes. They wanted the road version of that. At the time, the only road bikes they had were the carbon tube aluminium lug design, which 
Giant had pioneered the, the affordable version of that, but it was a bit dated by then. The problem was, in the 90s, nobody was buying road bikes, darling. They were buying mountain bikes. Indeed. <laughs> and in Holland, they were buying mountain bikes. <laughs> I think. Couldn't sell anything but a mountain bike. So here's Europe saying, right, we want eight or ten sizes of road bike not that we're selling any at the moment. You know, can you do this in time? Well, so no, we're not tooling up for all those lugs, all those bloody sides. You're not selling anything at all. It's stupid. So I, I, I literally got dropped in, in, into this meeting with all of these discussions going on. I then went back, came home and realised, well, actually, I've got a 16-inch time trial bike. You know, my little baby friend, they're hanging up. And I've actually got a 16-inch Fisher downtown mountain bike hanging up, which I ended up winning with the sort of thing. Why wouldn't I have a 16-inch road bike? You know, so if I had a, you know, we could do three sizes only of road bike, maybe. You know, do we need these 10 sizes? So I got Giant to send me one of their little 16-inch carbon frames, you know, the mountain bike frame. One that got a cable stuck on the wrong way around, actually, so that it had no use, as it were. I then built was a road bike, and I cycled it into... The following year, 94, when I had the job, John had an annual meeting in Lelystad in the Netherlands, a big get-together, whatever sort of thing. I, I, no one knew anything about this, by the way. They basically, what they wanted me to design the monocoque of what became the MCR, the road version of Chris's bike, if you like. Um, so I rode this little baby frame, 16-inch frame, with a long arrow seat post uh, into the hotel in Lelystad. And said, look, I, I, I've done this. Oh, oh they said, well, what, what is it? <laughs> <laughs> Being giant, we had a meeting because giant is a big corporation. We have meetings with big corporations, and we, we thrashed out that yeah, well, it was Compact Road, which was my name because it's what I used to name my packaging machine back in the day. Um, and it sort of uh, Jan Dirksen, who was the, the CEO in Europe at the time, was a sort of ex-racing cyclist. He had them make him a quick and dirty aluminium one, you know, uh, and just fell in love with it. And again, it it, it always had this X factor. You can rationalise that that smaller frame with a given amount of material will always be torsionally better, vertically slightly more compliant. You only need the three sizes, which reduces the manufacturing. And, of course, it's easier to sell on. It's less critical to selling on. You just need several. If you're going to have an aero post, you need several aero posts folded, but that, that wasn't a problem of a giant. Uh, ironically, all the time I worked for them, it never got done in carbon fibre. We only ever did the aluminium versions while I was actually working for giant. But it just, it all clicked. And they say, when we signed up on thing, we took the frames out there to, to show Manolo and said, look, this is their new idea, whatever sort of thing. But you know, if you don't like it, you know, you can have the old carbon versions, as it were, sort of thing. You know, the same as the look frames they were writing in. And they said, no, no, you know, we, we like, the, like the look of that sort of thing. We'll, we'll go with it. And they say, the rider just fell in love with it. There was something about that little baby frame. It just felt right, sort of thing. And, and that was it. It was up and running. Ultimately, it's evolution rather than revolution, which was the lotus, what they call it. It's always evolution wins in the long term. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think a lot of us that work in the bike industry, we, we often own several bikes. And I remember a period in my cycling life when I owned actually a, a Trek OCLV, which was still very much the traditional geometry, and yeah, also yeah. owned a look, a much more compact frame, both built to very same standards and yep. doing long rides on british roads on both bikes i could really feel the difference with the compact frame often with comfort which is a, a massive and often overlooked part of um yeah. road racing cycling it's, it's not massive it's not like 
a dual suspension or, or a, a soft fat tire, whatever. They're, they're, they're your real suspension. But that smaller frame combined with the longer, longer seat post, you, know, you just get that, that nice little bit of sort of give built in, as it were. So yeah. That's what's very satisfying. Interestingly, and I only discovered this long after I left Giant, those carbon fiber aero seat posts are the only bit that had my signature on them. There wasn't a scrap of carbon fiber in them. It was black glass fiber. <laughs> For two very good reasons. One, you don't get galvanic corrosion because you know, glass in aluminium or anything doesn't matter. Carbon does. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, glass is a lot tougher. It's not as nice and stiff, but the seat post is going to flex a bit. Giant didn't want them snapping off and being sued. Mm -hmm. So they just went with a slightly heavier but a bit more resilient glass post. So I'd say that was a, a very clever bit of engineering, which was the nice combination of me having the bright ideas and Taiwan being such good engineers. Mm. Very, very thorough and, and secure. So, so that, that's not something I could ever have done on my own. Just that combination of my ideas and their, their ability to make things and, and understand the engineering of it. It just worked out beautifully. Mm. Certainly, and game-changing for the industry. So coming on yeah. to that then, what I find fascinating about the bike when I'm teaching the bike mechanic courses that we run is I say to the students you know there's so much great new technology which we can get into and we shall but isn't it amazing the wheels are still built in the same way as they were in the Victorian age the chain is still the same design there's so much people got right originally but it does feel potentially like things are changing if we say took a bike from 2010, 2011, and gave it to Eddie Merckx's mechanic or Fausto Coppi's mechanic, they could probably, you know, with a torque wrench, quite happily work on that bike and recognize it. The basic design of the bike has been the same for over a hundred years. Yeah. And if we look at the road bike world, certainly on the World Tour team end, and, and of course shops as well, people have had to relearn or learn lots of new skills. So they're not working with cables so much now. It's hydraulic lines, it's electronic systems, it's apps. And there seems to be a radical change in the technology used for bicycles. So in materials, like you've talked about with carbon fiber, in design, and of course, technologies and smart tech and, and this stuff that's been accelerating through all aspects of society in the last 20 years. So where do you think we're at now in terms of an evolution of the bike design? And do you think that bikes most consumers are buying and most of us in the industry are selling and fixing will be unrecognizable to that 2010 11 speed road bike or is it just going to be a gradual shift and change and refinement? It's, well, from my personal perspective, I hate to say this, we're in a very bad place. Because when I got into cycling, I've been raising up my own frame back, back in the late 70s, then there were a series of standards. You know, bottom brackets are 1.370 <laughs> by 24 TPI, right and left hand, British standard cycle thread, okay? Steerers are one inch. Everything had a standard, okay? Now, from my point of view as a designer, that's terribly frustrating. I, you know, there are areas I can't touch, as it were, that I think that they have to be left alone. All of that's gone. Yeah. There are no standards for anything anymore. You can do anything you like, any bottom bracket, any headset, any whatever. The problem is there isn't enough in-depth engineering experience out there to get it right first time. Now, 
as I said, Mike Nelfer of HQ Fiber, he's run off his feet with broken carbon fiber frames or, or bits of, you know, in some cases it's an accident it has actually broken. In most cases, it's badly manufactured. Typically, wrapping aluminium bottom bracket shells in with the prepreg carbon when you cure it in, in the mold. The problem mm. with that is the aluminium expands, carbon fiber actually shrinks when it gets on. So when they crawl down, the bottom bracket shell comes loose. There's a surprise. Something mm. that's just dropping out with gluing them back in. Another one, the, the, the oversized bottom brackets and the, the multiple systems. Are. There are some we've had in where they're pressing the, the, the ball bearing, the ball into a carbon fiber frame. That isn't even bad engineering. You know, that's not engineering by any stretch of the imagination. I wouldn't even do that on a record-breaking machine. So I think it's just rubbish because there isn't that depth of experience and knowledge to, to do all this experimenting and then put them out on the market as it were, sort of thing. So we're in a very, very poor state at the moment. All sorts of nonsense bits are being done. The other thing that they're not doing, and if you look at the current sort of road bike and time trial bike, the road bikes are all you know, compact, sloping top tube, long seat posts, but none of the seat tubes are aero. And that was the best component of the aerodynamic because it's the only component where there's absolutely no trade-off in terms of strength to weight because you don't load the seat posts sideways. Your handlebars, forks, if they're aero, you'll, you weaken them by definition because you're pulling them across the thin part of their profile as it were. So you can have an aero seat post, which is a useful little benefit aerodynamically without any weight trade-off. They have the aero seat post on the time trial bikes, but then all the time trial bikes have level top tubes. So the, the aero post is a very short post. Now, if someone obviously did something sometime, you know, and everyone's copying it. They don't know why. They don't have a clue. I mean, all the years I worked for Giant, traveling around the world, the shows, I never met another bike designer. Now, I'm not being arrogant here. It's true. I'd never mm. met another person who was employed to design bicycles. Right? Mm. They don't need anybody. You know, they, they, it's color and graphics and pick and mix with the Shimano group set. That's it. There isn't a, and what really tells you how useless the industry is, when I left Giant after seven years, obviously an incredibly successful partnership, that sort of thing. I didn't exactly put Giant on the map, you know, but by giving them Compact Road and the MCR, they, they took the lead, as it were, sort of thing. And the, the Italians were copying them. After seven years of that incredibly successful partnership, nobody rang up to offer me a job. Mm. Now, I didn't want another job. At the whole point, I wanted to get back to Norfolk and recumbents but not one other company in the world oh right the world's most successful bike designer is available let's make him an offer no not a word nothing um, there is nobody being employed to design bicycles well it's certainly it's one of the most common things we see on social media is people will put say 10 or 15 modern aero frames or time trial frames next to each other and they do all look identical so yeah Exactly. And they say, I don't want to say they are all shit because some of them have some quite nice little features. We say, we get a string of them into repair, or whatever. And you go, oh, that's a nice little bit. They've got this to be right. But all of the other bits are wrong. And, and, and the next bike is the opposite, whatever. So no one has, you know, sat down and rationalized the whole package, as it were, sort of thing. It's just terribly frustrating. Particularly, I was out at the Taipei show back in the giant days, and I was the, the then boss of Rally, when they, when they still were a British-based company and making bicycles, asked me, where, where can I find, you know, a, a bright young designer, as it were, sort of thing. Um, and I said, have 
you go to the HPV world, the laid-back world. I mean, when I'm in that world, I, I do more asking than telling. You know, there's a really incredible mass of talent out there, which you know, is capable of you know, transferring from recumbent to upright if it needs to. So some really, really clever guys. But none of them have ever been approached. Hmm. No one's ever come into our world, as it were, to, to, to pick our brains and to try and make their bikes better. They don't need to. They don't care. The customers don't know any better anyway, so the colour and graphics, that's all that matters. Well, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's funny. In the world of clothing fashion, it appears to me as a non-fashionista, you can tell people anything's cool and they'll buy it. So I remember... Pringle jumpers were, that's what Alan Partridge wore. It was, you know, <laughs> fellow yeah. Norfolk chap. Uh, but they became cool for a time and everyone yeah, yeah. bought them, not everyone. And it seems the way with bikes. Then we've had people like Keith Montranger and such on the Cycle System podcast say, look, bikes are handbags. People buy them with fashion. And the, a lot of the fashions at the moment, which makes bikes look cool, so internal routing of cables, um, in, even through the handlebars and the fork steerer and such, which we've seen has caused so many problems, so many recalls, um, so many pros bikes breaking in races even. Um, we've had very high profile recall recently from Specialized with this fully integrated front end system. So there seems to be what sells to the customer can make lives very difficult for the industry and people I think sell them, repair the bikes. But in terms of the materials used in bikes um, with carbon fiber obviously taking over the mid to high end there's been a few claims recently of new wonder materials so people have talked about carrot fibers and flax fibers and that never seemed to take off even though it seemed quite eco-friendly and then five six years ago graphene was the new black no pun intended and we spoke to Vittoria about why graphene was so great, and they couldn't say why. And other people saying you can make space elevators out of them. Um, is graphene this new wonder material, or or what's happening well, there? I, I just say, helping. We we got to this conversation. I, I rang Mark about his piece in, in the mag on, on the graphene. Now, I've been following this story, not just a cycling story, because it's out there the, the, the real world, as it were, sort of thing, and trying to puzzle it out and, and what actually is it and, and whatever. And in theory, it's, it's made by delaminating pencil lead till it's one atom thick. Now, if it's one atom thick, it doesn't matter how technically strong it is. You can fart through it, okay? There's no actual strength at all, because it's only one atom thick. Uh, and the only illustrations I've ever seen are a power pile of black powder. Now, if it it's made from graphite and it's black powder, then it's graphite, okay? Mm. It's ground up pencil lead, you know. I haven't seen any actual application for it yet at all, ever in, in the whole world. You know, it, it, was it Bucky, Bucky Balls, my son reminded me, was the last big thing that was going to transform the world. You know, it, it might have potential, but as far as I can see, it doesn't exist. There is no such thing as graphene in, in a usable form anywhere in the world. Now, you know, the, the, the cycle world is famous for hype, obviously, and they're putting it in oil to improve lubrication, tires to lower rolling distance, into frames to stiffen them and improve their absorption of high-frequency vibration. Unfortunately, bicycle frames don't experience high-frequency vibration on account of their lovely pneumatic tires, which can clearly isolate them from anything remotely resembling high-frequency vibration. But it's utter bollocks of that. It's fake oil, you know. It just doesn't exist. And all of the synthetic fibers, they probably have potential 
when we really do have a problem. But the cycle industry doesn't. I, I was getting this stick when I worked for Giant, particularly from Germany, about the recycling. You don't need to recycle because you can keep cycling. You can keep a carbon fiber frame on the road forever. It's very, very good fatigue characteristics. And my mate Mike at HQ Fiber can repair them until the cows come home. They're made of glue and fibers. So you just need a bit more glue and fiber. Doesn't matter how badly they're damaged, they can ultimately be put back together again. So there's no need to worry about their, their, their recyclability. Okay, people do pass them on. It's just because they want a shiny new toy. But there's no reason why their old toy couldn't be passed on to somebody else. You know, those carbon frames you know, don't have a lifespan. They just go on as long as the pyramids, as far as I can see. And all of the synthetic fibres, that they don't come close to, to carbon in terms of stiffness or whatever. Mm. Um, I'm guessing that the next big move will be some way of improving the, the resin strength. Because obviously a composite is, is a mixture of fibres and resin. We're still on the effectively the same resins. We started with a straight epoxy resin. And I, I'm suspecting that, that the limitation of, of absolute strength is more down to the the resin and the fibers, because some of the higher strength carbon fibers are very, very much stronger than the, the bread and butter stuff we use for bike frames currently. But there's no point in, in using them because the resin isn't there to, to sort of you know, balance out that strength factor. So yeah, carbon fiber is as good as it gets. You just want better designs, you know. And again, that ultimately means you know changing the rules to allow monocoques. And again, well, people, even though in English time trialing. CTT don't ban monocoques, but they tried to ban mine, but in the end they gave up and let, let me ride it, sort of thing. Uh, but people don't ride them because, to about fashion, because their heroes don't ride them in the tour. Exactly. So isn't that interesting that if something is being ridden, you're not on TV, then people want it, and if not, maybe not so much. The best tale I ever heard when we signed up for on fate out in Spain back in the was it whatever we had a nice dinner i was chatting with uh colombo from, from Chinelli, and he said the spinaches got banned if you remember mm. and he said that was their most successful commercial thing they'd ever done you know and the, the uci just ah oh, before he banned them yeah uh, this was old italian families often taiwanese upstarts having comebacks that probably got bad but but he said what really amazed him wasn't the people stopped buying them the old boys riding up and down the coat de jour took them off their bikes wow even though they were comfortable and they worked and they're really nice, suddenly if the heroes weren't riding them, they didn't want them on their bikes. It, it, it's that influential. It really is. You know, the, the, from the Tour de France all the way ultimately down to the streets. Because I reckon if they were racing monocoque bikes in the Tour, you would be having my monocoque shopping bikes, you know, with their integrated transmission and chain sets and all the rest of it, whatever sort of thing. That would be your regular shopping bike because that influence would, would force the manufacturer's hand. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, one of the, uh, I think, Spinacci copies was called Tiramisu, which always made me giggle. And yes. it, it is true that if, if you rocked up at the club run there with the Spinacci or Tiramisu, people would say, what's this? You know, and yeah, yeah. it does seem to be one of those things that was banned by the UCI arbitrarily because they said, well, it causes crashes, it's dangerous, but there was no evidence of people actually crashing. <laughs> was telling me that they'd actually had surveys done by university and it's actually quicker and easier to get from the spinachi to your to your brake hood than it was from the tops mm. because you don't, there's no fore and aft movement there's only a lateral movement and that, that balances one arm against the other as it were so you could get to your brake levers quicker 
than you could from riding on the tops, which is the oldest alternative. Yeah. Uh, so as we're speaking in January 2022, and the entire supply chain for the bike industry, as with many industries, is in pretty dire straits, um, you know, at the moment. Is it, do you think the ability to repair carbon fibre and keep components going for people is going to become more important to bike shops and bike businesses? Because certainly, we look to you know the so-called golden age of frame building of the 40s 50s 60s you know those bike shops in france that built these stunning touring bikes they built the racks they built the custom mudguards they were you know they were building everything and could repair everything and more and more and more what we're seeing is that bike mechanics are becoming part fitters bikes are becoming systems whereas you say there's no standards you need the Trex headset and Trex fork and Trex compression bung and Trex bars and then they break and there's no there's no there's no replacement for them and bikes are off the road as famously happened with Canyon's recall last year. So do you think actually getting into things, especially like carbon fiber repair, would be really worthwhile for bike shops at the moment? Well, I think that the future for bike shops is has to be in repairs mm. because buying things online is a have to admit a, a, a lover of bike shops is still the most efficient and best way of doing it. You know, it's so much better to just to have you know a warehouse in the middle of the country and someone deliver it than, than duplicate that stock all over the country as it was. Mm. It helps everybody. It keeps, basically it makes it cheaper, and that that the day would always be the bottom line. So the future for bike shops, I suspect, it is doing running. You can't repair online, so you've got to have to have the people repairing the stuff and the knowledge. Whether the, the, obviously the bike shops aren't going to be doing the carbon fiber work, I, I doubt very much, whatever. But the, there's any number of people into composites around the country, like the, my friend Mike. He was never into bicycles. He, he was he's a, still is a motorbiker and, uh, and a bit of a sailor, whatever. Uh, and I obviously I started going to him to get bits of my bikes fixed and made and whatever. And it was a natural transition to then start fixing other people's bike frame. Now, anyone who's into composites and the say there's thousands of them across the country can tie in with their local bike shops and, and keep these carbon bikes on the road quite easily. Sort of that sort of thing. Now, whether it will happen is another matter sort of thing, because I say everybody wants a shiny new toy and, and they're happy to junk the old one because they can afford to. Mm. But there will eventually be, I guess, environmental pressures, you know, to, to think about this rather more. But you're still going to have your, your primary production is going to be places like China because they're just so better organized over there. Everything flows through. I mean, when Giant set up their factory on the mainland, they were doing that as I was leaving, whatever. That was set up very much on the Toyota principles of all the subcontractors were, were surrounding the factory, as it were, sort of thing. And the, the guys from the UK, actually, Giant UK, got to visit the factory while I was still there. And they said, basically, you've got more tubing in stock than they have. Hmm. I just didn't have any stock of anything. It literally was a just-in-time, on-the-hour delivery of materials and, and stuff, whatever. And they said, and of course it worked. That was a, a miracle thing. It actually worked. Thing just sort of, and that's it. And if you want cheap, high-quality bicycles, that's the only way of doing it. I'm afraid. Well, and what do you think about the amount of electronics and apps? You know, for want of a better word, for bikes now. So what we're seeing 
is your gears can stop working because of a firmware update, uh, that kind of thing. It, 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 it wrecks my brain, to be honest. <laughs> I, just, I can't. I, I said at the local bike shop I went to the other day, and you've got a laptop plugged into a bicycle. So, no. What happens halfway to buggy or the club runs sort of thing? So, I, I don't know. Again, it, the potential for electronics is obviously fantastic. It's transformed, you know, half the world sort of things. So who am I to rubbish it, whatever sort of thing? But I know, I, I know so little about that whole area that I, I'm just not going to go there sort of thing. I yeah. really don't know what the long term future is, whatever sort of thing. I mean, classically, you know, it goes wrong less, but you can't fix it. That's the bottom line. You know, the bicycles I started riding, I, I could fix on the way to work. There was nothing I couldn't fix with a hammer sort of situation. But I needed to. Yeah. The difference between a, a modern Toyota and a Land Rover. Mm. A Land Rover can be fixed with a hammer, but you need the hammer to hang. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The Toyota doesn't go wrong sort of thing. That's sort of the way it works. I mean, it's a trade-off. It would be nice to think we could have a choice, but, you know, we could still get the bicycle that could be fixed with a hammer, but that, that's hard to see how that's going to be uh, other than an expensive handmade speciality. Uh, and, of course, yeah, we still had that. We had the, the sort of the, 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 the shortage scene, as it were, sort of thing with the handmade steel frames and whatever sort of thing, and that, that, that's nice and healthy. But the, the, the bulk of people just want good value for money. Nice rideable bicycles, and that, that means mass production uh, in the Far East. Can't see that changing in a long time. Yeah, I mean, certainly. And in terms of that nice rideable bicycle, um, obviously, I'm coming from the mechanic side of things, but I realized things were a bit nuts when I saw a child's balance bike, you know, with no pedals, with, yeah. with internal routing on the rear brake cable. <laughs> and it's like it's really gone all the way through the industry. So, you know, you see hybrids for people riding down at the shops with a tapered fork and a, a tapered head tube. And it does seem to be that there are people making marketing decisions about what bikes should be, which don't work for the consumer because they don't know how to change their gear cable. Um, They don't work for the bike shops because they're wondering how many bottom bracket tools they need to buy in the next three months. Um, And maybe they don't work for the importers either because, of course, the poor old importer or distributor is getting phone calls from the shops all the time saying, you know, have you got headset number 69 out of the 170 available? The interesting thing is nobody knows who drives this. Exactly. When I first started with Giant back in 94, one of the sort of the, the hack they had in, in, in the office in, in, in Europe in Lelystad was a, a, a beautiful hybrid bike, but based on a 26-inch wheel. Now, back then, the first wave of hybrids came out then. They had 700C knobbly tires for <coughs> a chain set. Now, apparently, Giant had sat down before I was with them, of course. I thought, well, that's not logical, is it? That's not rational at all. If you want a, a street version of a mountain bike, you know, keep with a 26-inch wheel is tough, give it a, a, you know, a fat, semi-slick tire, double chain set, whatever, so they'd be a much better setup sort of thing. So they made their hybrids like that. Nobody would buy them. They said the world's biggest bike maker couldn't make the, the correct bicycle because the dealers wouldn't take it on board. They're completely bombed. Mm. They're a complete failure. Uh, Despite the fact, obviously, that that's what we ended up 
doing the second wave of hybrids were that. But then, because everyone was making these 700 anomalies, completely pointless bikes, they wouldn't buy the right one. And that's it. So, you know, who's doing that? Mm. Nobody's doing it. It's sort of happening. And so even the world's biggest bike maker couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. So you, you said there, are, there will be situations like that you're just stuck with. You, know, you just yeah. have to work around them somehow. Indeed. I mean, what would be nice is if you can really take a lead, as, as we did with, with TCR, you know, if you, you go in there with a bang, right, this is it, we're defining it, this is the new thing, this is worth having, this works, then you can do it. And we, uh, ironically, Giant weren't happy with it. Okay. It's very strange. After a, a, a couple of years or so, they brought out the OCR, which was the oversized version of the compact road. And I said to them, well, what are you doing this for? You know, don't consult me about everything, obviously, whatever sort of thing. I said, well, why, why the super fat gouger? We, we know you don't need that, whatever sort of thing. Oh, well, that, that's the fashion, they said. Mm-hmm. No, the fashion is what we say it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We are in charge now. Haven't you noticed that sort of thing? And, the Chinese don't, I think, like that. I think they like to follow closely and do, do it better, as it were. They don't like you know, beating their way through the jungle, which is, of course, what we were doing. Mm. We were suddenly in the lead, and they sort of, I think, felt a bit nervous over that. So I think. But, yeah, they were, and they, they could have sort of carried on making better bikes and tweaking this and tweaking that. I mean, I've had a few ideas since then. Obviously, I've got paid to do it anymore, but you can't avoid thinking about these things when you have to repair the badly done ones and yeah I, I could come up with a subtly different improved version of compact road tomorrow sort of thing but nobody's interested and it wouldn't even necessarily sell because it wouldn't be that bigger bang you know, the only big bang you've got left is, is the full monocoque and that, and that needs you know a, a serious launch as it were sort of thing well, well it's fascinating isn't it so maybe anyone that's listening who's an instagram influencer you could move your attention from handbags to bikes and start influencing the big bike companies oh, no, no, you, no, you can't come in from the outside <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's true i mean it's so many people have tried, they, they come and see me and they want to come into the bike industry and, and sort it out you can't do that you really have to be within the industry to start with because there are things you need to know there's the, have you seen that remember the go cycle is it go cycle the, the cast magnesium yeah that came out with no understanding of, of the market because it's got small wheels. Mm. Nobody in Europe, by the bike market, where they'll spend a decent amount of money, will buy a small wheel bicycle. Mm. It does not sell. Because I, I bought a Molten bike and took it over to Giant to show. I said, look, the, the Molten, whatever this, you could make that in aluminium. Da, da, da. So yeah, won't sell, small wheels. And th- th- that's what they knew already. So in terms of that go cycle, it will sell in the UK but we won't pay the price for it in the UK, mm. the lowest price point in Europe. But the only places they'll pay a good price for a good bike, they won't ride small-wheel bicycles, other than folding bikes, obviously. So you, you need all the, the know-how of the industry to, to, to relaunch. I mean, yeah, my, my idea for the city bike, you know, the chain, integrated chain case and all that, which go cycle was copied, obviously. But you need to do that with large wheels and the right fittings and the right and the lights and everything. Uh, but I say it's, it's, I've given up on it, to be honest. <laughs> Can't be asked anymore, I think. Well, that, that, that feels like a nice place to wrap up because um, when we spoke yesterday, you said you were still in the workshop but semi retired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what is it that, that Mike Burroughs is doing right now? Uh, f- fixing broken carbon frames. <laughs> <laughs> 
quite a lot. Shortening cranks for people, because uh, if you've read, I've got two books out there, the Bicycle Design, although I think that's out from print these days, whatever, that, that, that covers the, the short crank feature, the short, short, 140 is about the right length for people, to be honest, not 170, they're, they're, they're stupid, too long, whatever, uh, sort of thing, so shortening the cranks. Uh, sort of attempting a, a speed record machine, which we're working with GCN on at the moment, whatever, so we, we can do that, whatever. Uh, and flogging the last few of the, I've got the other book out there, the Bicycle and a Superbike, which we have 10 copies left if anyone wants a copy. <laughs> uh, if they can get onto Tony Hadland, com. So if you want the, the last few remaining copies, uh, we did. We had a, a thousand printers and they sold quite nicely, but it, it, it's all in there if you want to in detail or whatever. So that's it. I'm just basically repairing. I, I don't want to get started manufacturing again. I mean, the last thing I did was the freight bike. I did about 100 of those. Uh, and I'm just winding things down. I, I come in later and go home earlier. You know, sort of thing. That's a, a nice way to sort of slowly retire. Yeah. But I say, if anybody comes along and wants me to design a better bike and they're in a position to produce it, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to think about it. But I, mean, I, I can't see it happening. I really can't. There's no sign of the industry going in a better direction. I say most of the stuff I see here, you know, they're, they're going in a worse direction. I mean, they still haven't even solved the galvanic corrosion problem, the number of corroded in seat posts we see, and that doesn't need to happen at all. Yeah, yeah, there does seem to be a point where we, the industry seems to want people just to buy the new things rather than fix them. We're certainly seeing that with the the entry-level suspension forks, which used to be completely serviceable. They're more and more throwaway, we're seeing at the moment. But a really fascinating talk with your bike through several decades of bike technology and developments. And, you know, some of the sentiments you're speaking, I'm sure, mirror many peoples. Um, if you want to get involved, guys, in discussing this and maybe even send some questions that we could ask Mike in follow-up podcasts, you can go to Cycling Industry Chat on Facebook, which is the Facebook page for Cycling Industry News. The website with our latest issue is cyclingindustry.news. There's a new um, issue just come out for January 2022 and if you want to get involved in my company's Facebook community we've got a Facebook group called Dial Up Your Cycle Tech Skills which is a place for bike nerds for bike mechanics for people who love bikes to come on and kind of show off with cool things they've made to ask questions ask for help about things they're getting wrong or maybe just offload off a bit about internal routing and Press fit bottom brackets. But most of all, Mike, thanks so much for all the great bikes you've given us and entertainment you've given us over the years. And thanks for joining us for the show. Yep. Thank you, Sean. Yep. But, well, I guess we'll talk again. Brilliant. Look forward to it. Bye.